Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host for today, Stephen, and I'm speaking with Professor Kirill Panamarev from the Department of Economics. Professor Panamarev's focus is in econometrics, and he holds a PhD in economics from the University of California, Los Angeles. He's here to talk to us today about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Panamarev. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing really well. Glad to hear that. To start off, could I just get you to tell us you know, what your current role is and uh, how would you describe what you do in that role to uh, a layperson who is not an economist? So I'm currently an assistant professor in uh, the Department of Economics at the University of Chicago. And this role assumes that I do research, I teach and supervise students, and I participate in, in some other activities, you know, departmental meetings uh, and so on, some administrative stuff. Beyond that, there's sort of profession-wide kind of activities that you do, which is refereeing papers. And that takes a lot of my time at the moment as well. Yeah, that's, um, you know, I understand that's a part of uh, academic life. Could you just quickly sort of describe what that is? Sure. So when a paper is submitted for publication in a decent economics journal, it's usually sent to referees. And so each of them has to submit a report, which means that you have to read the paper very carefully. Sometimes you have to read the proofs, which can be quite long. I'm talking about my field, which is econometrics. And then you have to produce a report for the editor and uh, produce a recommendation, whether you suggest that they accept the paper or reject it or accept with some revisions. So these are the three options. Gotcha. So I, you know, we'll, we'll get back more to your job and, and your current research. But first, could you take us way back? We're curious, you know, when you were a kid, maybe in, um, you know, the equivalent of like a, a U.S. Uh, elementary or middle school age, what did you want to do when you grew up? And was there, was there any sign that you were going to end up in econometrics? Well, all right, let me, let me go way back then. First of all, there was no sign at all that I will end up in econometrics all the way until college. Maybe I had no idea this is what would happen. So as a kid, I really enjoyed playing soccer and I actually wanted to be a professional soccer player. So I did a lot of training and, and competed and so on and so forth. But, you know, in school, I was always good at math and I enjoyed doing the homework and, and solving some extra problems. And so this is what brought me to economics in the first place. Somehow, I really disliked physics in high school and middle school. And, and so when you like math, but you don't like physics, that's sort of what's left uh, is economics or pure math. But then it wasn't clear to me what kind of job I would be doing afterwards. Right. These days, you normally go to a tech company or you would do, say, an undergrad in math and then master's in econ and then pursue whatever career you'd like. But I just did economics from the outset. Uh, again, I didn't know at all that I would be in academia, let alone that I would be doing econometrics for life. I'm curious because I'm a soccer fan. Um are there any overlaps between those in your life that you found? Like, is there any role for econometrics or the kind of stuff that you uh, research in, uh, in also being a soccer fan <laughs> or no? So in my research, not exactly, but in economics, there is a, a large community of people that researches, uh, so it's called economics of sport, I think, in general. In soccer in particular, there's some interesting game theory there. I don't really know the details, but there are conferences held about this topic. Okay, so getting back to your career path, could you just sort of quickly take us through the, well, what, what that path was? So like, you know, start, starting with college, you know, where did you study? Um, where did you get your degrees? And, and where have you been before you uh, ended up at Chicago? So I did my undergrad in uh, higher school of economics in Moscow. This is considered one of the best uh, universities in Russia in general and in economics specifically. And I'm very glad that I chose that place for studying. 
and I'm very thankful to it. Basically, it opened, you know, it opened up this path for me that I could do a PhD later on and then end up in academia. I didn't know it was possible at all before entering the place. So my undergrad was in economics, but I have to say that also in Russia, when you do economics, you do a lot of math. So it would probably be an equivalent of uh, like an econ math major in, in an American university. So after that, I went to Los Angeles, the PhD in economics at UCLA, uh, straight from undergrad, which is getting more and more common these days, but used to be not so common. So that took me six years. And after that, I ended up at Chicago. You mentioned like how you, you know, the, the original attraction to economics because you uh, were good at math, did not enjoy physics, uh, and, and didn't want to just do pure math. But uh, was there a moment or an experience that you had where it sort of crystallized for you that you actually wanted to pursue that at the graduate level? So that was roughly my second or third year of college. Uh, so we had those like case studies competitions in Russia where you have a chance of, you know, trying what it's like to be an economic consultant. For, li- for a living. And so we participated in a bunch of those competitions. And I realized that I don't quite like what consultants are doing <laughs> at, at the moment. Now I've, you know, I've changed my mind. There are all sorts of questions that are interesting and I would be interested in thinking about them. But at the time I thought, okay, this is not for me. To give an example, one of the tasks that we had to do is for sort of a large dairy producer, we had to optimize the, the, the network of where they, they should put storage and uh, you know, where they should put the stores, where they sell stuff. And so it was kind of maybe too complicated of a problem for, for an undergraduate student in the second year. It was sort of interesting, but at the end, I wasn't really uh, sort of driven by it. I don't know. Another problem that we had, another sort of complex question was, so there was a, the largest private bank in Russia at the time, and it was way smaller than the, the two major government-owned uh, banks. And so the question basically was, how do we make it the second biggest bank in the country? which was impossible, but they wanted us to think about it. But the, the scales were just incompatible of those. So the government-owned banks and the, and the privately-owned banks. And anyway, this is a sort of question that we thought about. And I thought, okay, this is not for me. And, and at the same time, there was a guy one year above me in the program who started applying for, for a PhD program. So this was my third year. So me and my friend decided to follow the guy's progress. And we basically said, look, if he, if he makes it, we'll try as well. And then that guy got accepted to University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is a great school. Uh, and so we decided to try it. And then we spent the entire summer and the fall preparing for the, the application process and getting recommendation letters and doing some, trying to do some research and all that stuff. Uh, and eventually we both got in schools in California. I went to UCLA. My friend got into UCSD. And we were very happy about that. That's uh, that's cool. You had you know people who you could go to uh, not the same school, but uh, you know same region uh, and make that journey with. That's cool. Um, and he was one of my best friends as well. So we were really happy that we ended up so close. Yeah, that's nice. So, uh, what was your experience like um, getting a PhD in the U.S. after doing your undergrad in Moscow? So doing a PhD straight after undergrad is tough. Of course, in the first couple of years, everything is new. While for a lot of my classmates, the first year of macro sequence, for example, was something very familiar. And I struggled with that in particular, but you get a hang of it. And so later on, you know, I passed all the exams at the end of the first year. These are called comprehensive exams at UCLA, but they have different names in different schools. And after that, I got to do what I really like, which is uh, econometrics. Can you maybe explain a, a little bit more about like what econometrics and, and what your area of focus is? So econometrics is a very, is a very special field, which is about data analysis, if, if, if I put it simpler. 
So in economics, a lot of people, a lot of researchers use quantitative tools. And the, the task of an econometrician is to come up with these tools for you know, some very specific questions that people don't yet know how to solve. Say you need to estimate something that you don't know how to estimate. And then you come to econometrician and say, hey, guys, which formula should I use? Basically, that's, that's the idea. And so it involves a lot of math. And I had to take some math courses to sort of get into the field. So I, I took some graduate uh, math classes at UCLA, and we have some great math professors there. So the entry cost in this field is very high because you have to learn a lot of stuff on top of what you learn in the first two years of the PhD program before you can actually read and understand papers. And so this was the toughest thing that I had to do during my PhD is to sort of get prepared for reading the papers and understanding the proofs. And then after that, you have to learn how to you know, write new proofs and, and, and the, write new papers. Uh, and, and that's... Uh, in the last three years of the PhD program. This is what I'm still doing. So can you tell me just a little bit more about who who helped you as you were, you know, it sounds like there's a very steep learning curve and, and a lot of adjustments to be made. What were your sources of support through that? And like, what what kept you going through, through that period? So definitely my advisors, they were a tremendous help and they would always find enough time to, to talk with me and to give some advice and to really try to understand some big idea that I was coming up with at the time. So they were very, very helpful. Well, then, of course, my peers, who would, you know, we were all in the same position, trying to start doing research, trying to find topics, trying to find questions. And we're, we all struggled. And so we helped each other through that. And then my friends and family, of course, would always support me. I, I think I got really lucky with my parents. Uh, they were always super supportive, even though they weren't super excited that I left to study in the US. They were very supportive all the time. So a big thanks to them for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how did you sort of come upon your your topic? Uh, and yeah, can you tell us what that process is like? Well, in, in general, in, in grad school, coming up with a research question is a very hard problem. So you have to read a lot of papers. You have to talk to your advisors and seminars and hope that you'll get an idea of what might work. And then you try. It doesn't work. You try again. It doesn't work. And then, you know, skip two years <laughs> of this process. And then finally, you could get something that, that seems to work that could be decent. If, if it's well done, could be a, a decent paper, could get your job at the end, could be part of your dissertation that you'll be proud of uh, you know, years later. But the process of coming up with the research question is very sort of routine and boring, I would say. So you just read a lot and, and you talk to people and you, you pitch some ideas to your advisors and they say, you know, do this, don't even try to do that. This has already been done. And so on. Gotcha. That's like a good description. I like that. Um, as as you were getting your PhD, did you always want to go into academia, or you know, like what was your sort of decision making process and taking that route? So for me personally, I always wanted to to go to academia, and even uh, when I was on the market, when I was looking for a job, uh, when there's always a lot of uncertainty, I didn't really apply to non academic jobs. I applied to I applied to ninety five jobs in total, and maybe four or five of them were non academic just to hedge a little bit, but I didn't really want to go there. So somehow I decided to stay in academia from from the outset. And I feel like this is what most people want when they start doing the PhD. And during the PhD, people might change their mind, which is perfectly fine, because you realize that this process of trying to come up with questions and, and doing research is just not for you. And on top of that, you, you could be worried about impact, right? If you work in a private sector, like in a tech firm, you do an experiment, 
uh, you implement it if the results suggest that you you know should implement some new policy, and then you immediately see the impact on, on a lot of consumers potentially. So that's that's a big difference also that make people change their minds. But for me, uh, I don't know. I always want to stay in academia. It looks like a, like a very nice job. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually, so, since you say that, um, yeah, like, uh, what have you found to be some of the fun aspects of this job and uh, what aspects of it are not that fun? So far, I only saw the fun part of it, I, I would think. So I won't be able to tell you the full picture, but you do what you really like, which is research. And then you have some other activities uh, that you know you like a little bit less but it's just part of the profession but most of the time you do what you really really like and on top of that unlike sort of a nine to five jobs you have a lot of control over your time like if on a, on a given tuesday you really don't want to work well don't work you know <laughs> uh, as long as you can be productive later and and, and still do what you need by the deadline yeah that, that's definitely something i've heard a lot is that it's sort of a blessing and a curse. Like you, yeah, if you don't want to work one day, you don't have to. But at the same time, uh, it's sort of like you always could be working and always maybe feel like you should. I, I don't know if that's in your That's experience. right, that's right, that's right. Yes. <laughs> oh, another thing that I want to mention here is that typically you're, you're free to think about whatever questions you like, right? No one tells you sort of what to do, right? If you think that I want to spend some time on this project, you can go ahead and spend some time. And of course, you'll have co-authors and then, you know, uh, some maybe joint projects that you work in where you have some responsibilities. Uh, but, but apart from that, you do whatever you want, basically. Yeah, and actually that, that leads me right to uh, the next question, which is, uh, yeah, you know, what kind of questions are you interested in right now? Can you tell us a little bit about what you're looking into at the moment and what's happening in the field of econometrics? So um, I'm working sort of at the intersection of econometrics, industrial organization, microeconomic theory, uh, and so in my work, I combine statistical tools and um, sort of economic thinking to develop econometric methods for, for testing and assessing uh, economic models against the data, right? So that's, that's the idea. So uh, within the field, I'm interested in studying economic, in the empirical analysis of economic models that involve strategic interactions. Uh, so this could be indiv- uh, interactions between individuals or firms. I'm talking about situations such as uh, market entry, peer effects. Uh, which could be pure effects between in a network of banks or in a network of people studying together uh, and the network formation models and auctions, right? So all of those settings involve some strategic interactions, which make the empirical analysis quite complicated. And so when, when people study such things, they often have to rely on the assumptions that are not motivated by economic theory and not necessarily testable against the data. So you're just making this assumption because you believe in it, but there's no way to verify it. And so in my work, I try to find ways to relax these assumptions while still, you know, producing some informative conclusions that, that, and uh, producing estimators that have uh, desirable statistical properties and, and thinking a lot about practical implementation of those things. Uh, because if you come up with a method that is tremendously hard to implement, no one's going to use it. And then it's kind of, uh, you know, the theorem might be very nice and beautiful, but it's useless at the end. So I don't want to do that. Uh, so got to think about implementation as well. That's interesting. And I, I don't know if it's possible to, to come up with one that won't just go straight over my head. But um, you, you mentioned the need to like, you know, maybe relax certain assumptions or take another look at them. Uh, is there an example of, of, of from your work or, or from someone else's work that you can think of, of when it was useful to reexamine an assumption like that? You know, so it's, it's, it's not that people don't know that these assumptions are, are bad. It's just that at the moment, in some particular 
uh, situations, there's no way around them, right? And so there's a lot of people working on, on this specific question, how to relax this kind of assumptions that are not testable or not motivated by the economic theory. I can try to give you an example. So we can imagine a market entry situation where a bunch of firms decide whether to enter the market or not. Uh, so a typical example here is uh, the airline market. So you have two cities that represent the market. So you're flying from Chicago to Washington. That's, that's a market. And then each airline decides whether it wants to serve this market or not, right? And so you have, say, six major airlines in the U.S., and maybe some of them will serve this market and the others will not. And then if you model this from a game theory perspective, uh, so in game, in game theory, there's this notion of Nash equilibrium, right? Which is basically when everyone does not regret doing what they did. So it means that if I deviate on my own and make an alternative decision, I would not regret, or, you know, I would regret deviating. So I, I should stay where I am. And so in this type of situations, there's usually multiple equilibria, which means that it, it could be that only the first firm entered the market and that's an equilibrium, or it could be that the first, the third, and the fourth firms entered the market and that's an equilibrium. And so the theory produces kind of a lot of different equilibria, a lot of different potential situations in which no one regrets what they did. But for empirical analysis, say if we want to figure out how costly it is for the firms to serve the market, or if we want to think about taxation or, or uh, you know, some, some stimulus to the firms to serve or, or not to serve particular markets. So this, this multiplicity of equilibria presents a real challenge. Uh, and so one assumption that, that one could make here is to say, this is the rule according to which the equilibrium was selected from the list of possible equilibria. But then economic theory doesn't tell us anything about this rule, and there's no good way of testing whether this particular rule is the, the true one against the data that we see. And so people have come up with different ways of handling this uh, question where you don't assume a particular equilibrium selection rule, but you use some completely different tools, which may not lead to conclusions that are as sharp, but at least they are robust to making or not making this assumption. And so in, in a sense, you, you make weaker assumptions, you obtain weaker conclusions, but you trust those conclusions more. And that, that's kind of typically what happens in these situations. Oh, yeah, that's a good illustration. Thank you. Um, I, I know that, uh, you know, you mentioned that there's sort of a, a high barrier to entry just in terms of learning the math. <laughs> but, uh, uh, right. yeah, to, to a, a young person, maybe like a high schooler or um, an undergraduate who uh, was interested in, in pursuing this field and, and, you know, interested in going into academia, what would your advice be to them? If one is interested in pursuing this field, then it's really important to start learning real math in, in undergrad. Because in, in, the, in the econ programs in the US, math is very weak, which is okay for an econ problem, you know, because no one, not, not everyone wants to be that, an econometrician or not everyone wants to work in machine learning or whatever. So if, if you can, you know, do a joint major, at least econ and math, or maybe just start with math, that will be tremendously useful later on. And, and, and second of all, if you made it to grad school and you want to go to academia, really listen to your advisors because they know this stuff way better. Uh, and so they, they would recommend, you know, math textbooks. They would recommend what to pay attention to or recommend some papers to, to read. Maybe you can try to organize a reading group where you read some very complicated textbook all together and then present to each other and discuss. And then this doesn't only apply to grad school, right? This applies to all sorts of studying processes, right? So if you, if you take a math class, it's, it's very useful to have a group of people to discuss it with because you cannot talk to your parents about it normally, you know, <laughs> or to people in bars because no one would listen to it. So, so you get a group of peers that, that, that you can study with. 
That's good advice. So is that something that you had uh, throughout your your PhD work was like people who were going through the same material and, and definitely yes. Yeah. Definitely, yes. And, and uh, my advisor, Andres Santos, was very, very helpful with that. He, he spent a lot of time explaining some very complicated stuff to us. It took us a couple of years, maybe, to, to go through this book and statistics that, that's considered very hard. Uh, we made it eventually, but we could not have made it without him. And, and so he would spend an hour a week with us, listening to our presentations, correcting what we misunderstood and then explaining what we did not understand at all. Uh, so this kind of reading group was very helpful. And, and we had these reading groups in, in all fields, you know, talking to my peers and they all found it very helpful, something, you know, a setup like this. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Um, yeah, just just one more question really. And that is just uh, what do you find most fulfilling about about your current job? So I, have, I haven't started teaching yet, but uh, of course, teaching is, is uh, one thing that, that people find very fulfilling. I taught a lot in grad school. I, I taught as a, as a TA. I taught as an instructor in summer classes. Uh, and so that's kind of, you know, the best feeling when you ex- explain something and then you see that people get it. You know, there's this moment of, oh, I see. And then the, so this is uh, sort of the best moment of, of the lecture when you explain something new or complicated. And then you see that people understand it and it could be useful to them, you know, in their later work or in their later classes. And then, of course, you know, doing research, which takes up most of my time, where I hope that I can produce papers that are useful, mainly. Uh, of course, you, you, you want to have some beautiful math in there, you know, some, some really nice theorem that, that people will read 50 years later and say, oh, this guy knew what he was doing. But the main, the, the main thing is that it should be useful. Uh, it's not you know, pure math where people write theorems for the sake of understanding how the world works. And, and those papers do not necessarily have applications in the real life, but the economics is very different. You, you write something that you want to, to have immediate impacts, right? So in my case, since I'm kind of providing tools for people to use, I want to build a tool that people will find you know, convenient, useful, et cetera, et cetera. And then in my field, since the, the task is to provide a tool for people to use, so this is kind of, there is an intermediary between me and the impact on the real world, which is other economists. And so my hope is I can be useful for them. Thank you, Professor Panamarev, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the others, leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. We'll see you around.